Hello and welcome to Publish Me, a monthly podcast series from AS21 Publishing and AS21 Podcasting Network. I'm your host, Keith F. Shovlin, publisher and chief creative of AS21 Publishing, and please excuse the voice, I'm just getting over something. But please, now give your attention to my co-host. Hello everyone, this is Paul Russell once again. Welcome to our wonderful podcast. Hope everyone's doing well and if you are in the northern climes, please enjoy the snow we've been having here in April. Yeah, it's yeah. been wonderful for everyone involved. Yeah. We didn't get enough of it already this winter, so we're getting an extended winter and when we were expecting spring. Yeah. I hope you're as smiling and happy as I am. It was 80 degrees and rainy on Friday, April 1st. You know, nice little joke right there in the weather. But then it was... 49 degrees and windy on Sunday. It was a 30-degree swing from Friday afternoon to Sunday afternoon. And then we had freezing temperatures overnight Sunday. We, even down here in D.C., were risk of getting snow in April. Ah. We had snow here in Jersey. (laughs) Oh. Yeah, and I saw some pictures from friends up in Pittsburgh that had a bit of snow. People go into opening day of baseball, and there's snow on the ground. What's up with that? (laughs) It's just awful. It's just awful. All right. If this is your first time joining us, what gives? Why didn't you join us earlier? This is a good podcast. You've been missing out. Go back and listen to old episodes. (laughs) So uh, we start every episode out by we going to do a check-in with Paul as he's working on his fantasy epic, The Will of the Magi. But first, just a quick update. This is the April 2016 edition chapter. Is it chap? Is it really chapter 13? Are we on unlucky 13 now? We are. We are. Oh, great. So, yes, this is chapter 13 of the Publish Me podcast. And we're talking today about writing death. See, there the voice works a little bit for that. You got the perfect voice for this podcast. <laughs> yes. Okay, so now, without further ado, let's get an update on The Will of the Magi from Mr. Russell. Well, I am sorry to say, everyone, that I've hit some writer's block for this past month. Ah! That the bane of all writers everywhere. Um, And, you know... I've been writing for a little while, you know, for a small part of my life. 20 years at this point. Just a small part, yeah. Just a small part, you know, just the vast majority of my life, you know. I could go back to kindergarten, but I'm not going to include the dragon book I wrote in kindergarten. <laughs> my mother does, but I'm, I'm not yet. Yeah, I wrote a play in first grade. Lord knows where it went, but yeah. <laughs> it's on Broadway, probably. Yes, I wrote oh. Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, this past month has been Paul banging his head against the wall and attempting to try and figure out how to get past his writer's block. I've done the try to write something else, go for long walks, exercise, sing in the shower, go to a gun range, go on more hikes, sing in the rain. Sing in a thunderstorm. Sing in an ice storm. Go for long, sing it drives. I have probably tried every single method that myself and my vast number of writer friends can think of to try and get past writer's block. And 
I'm stumped. So anyone who's listening, if you have any suggestions for writer's block, please comment on our Facebook or Twitter, Twitter feeds or email us and let me know what you suggest. Maybe your idea will work and I'll give you a big hug and kiss and sign a book for you. <laughs> well, I do have some advice that I got from an author. Well, Nerdist podcast interview with an author that I thought was excellent and really I haven't had been had time to do any writing myself lately. But if I did run into writer's block, I definitely would planning on taking this advice. Nick Hornby, author of High Fidelity and About a Boy, was on the Nerdist podcast back in November and they asked what does he do with writer's block? And he said he he does puzzles. He will get a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle, one of extreme difficulty. And he, the example he gave was he did a puzzle of the cover of uh, the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And it was a huge version of the cover such that there were like several pieces that were like a single of the flower, of the flowers that spell out Beatles from the poster, oh. from the cover. But by doing a puzzle, it was such a completely different expression of his mind than writing that it was able to get him thinking creatively and solving the puzzle, which then solved the puzzle of his writer's block to get him working again. And they asked him about, well, do you, do you go online or anything? I said, oh, absolutely not, because if you go online, you start reading, and then you're reading something else, and you get stuck in you know, a cycle of reading all these news stories or this or that and everything. And all of a sudden you've lost hours to do nothing. Well, if you're doing a puzzle, you're not on the computer, you're not using the internet. And it's real easy to, if you get stuck on the puzzle, to go back to writing. So This is true. I'm going to be, I'm going to be buying a puzzle tomorrow. (laughs) Crossword puzzles work as well. Ooh. Yeah, those will work. Yeah, because that really gets the pistons firing. John, so. Well, that that's my advice. I haven't tried it yet, but that's why I suggest. I'll let you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> yeah, if this writer's block goes another month, we're gonna have to we're gonna have a serious conversation. Oh no. Yeah. Which isn't good because we're gonna have a guest next month, and we don't want to fight in front of guests. <laughs> no, no. We'll, we'll just, we'll have all of our listeners help us build a gladiatorial arena. No, God. <laughs> I don't know. I, we'll no, go no one needs to see me in a gladiatorial arena. <laughs> okay. All right. So this is April 2016, chapter 13, writing death. Now, just some quick updates. We are still sitting at 116 likes on Facebook. That's fine. Okay. I'm not going to push, but you know, come on. Uh, we're at, we're sitting at 38 followers on Twitter. It fluctuates. Sometimes we get as high as 40. Now, just a quick shout out. We did get a shout out on Twitter from one of our followers. This is actually a friend of yours, Paul, uh, Miss Megan Lacey. Woohoo, Megan. Yeah, good job. Yes, yeah, she tweeted to us back in February, so I'm really behind on sharing this. <laughs> uh, saying, finally finished catching up. On all the episodes of published podcast, just in time. Great stuff about the writing process, guys. Hashtag writer's life. And of course, yep. 
we retreated that. We responded. Thank you, Megan. We already recorded the next episode, so we'll have to save this for March. But you do get a shout-out as a fall. Uh, so then she came back. Well, I have to support my friend Paul. Shout-out is appreciated, but unnecessary. I'm just happy he's doing well. Well, obviously you're not doing well right now, so we're going to have to work on that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can give a shout-out to a newer follower, Karen Wired. Started following us at Wired Karen. No other follower, new followers since, well, Megan Lacey started following us before February at No Shame Educator. And Music Promotion World at Publicist Music started following us. Now, of course, I'm giving shout-outs now. I do reserve the right to edit out any shout-out I give if someone unfollows us between the time I say it and the episode gets released. <laughs> Surprisingly, it's happened numerous times. Oh, no. Yeah, Twitter's fickle. Ah, Twitter. Twitter. All right, and of course, uh, you can continue to check us out on Podomatic. It's what, where we're hosted. you also find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and of course, our home on the web, media.as21.com, where we post, put up a blog post every time a new episode is out with an embedded play right there so you can just go straight to media.as21.com click on the link for audio podcast and publish me and listen to it right there on the AS21 website or you can listen on Podomatic or iTunes or Stitcher Radio, whichever you like and of course you can always reach out to us on Twitter at Publish Podcast Facebook.com slash Publish Podcast on Google Plus, and of course our email, publishpodcast at as21.com aois21.com <laughs> We also have a YouTube channel, i sorry I've been ill for the most of the past month, so last month's episode has not yet been posted to YouTube, but hopefully both of these will be getting up at this, hopefully at the same time, so we'll kind of catch up there. Okay, so let's get into the conversation. We're already got 10 minutes of this podcast down. Now let's talk death. Our favorite topics as writers. Oh, yes. Especially other people's deaths. Oh, well, heard. obviously other people's deaths. We're not going to write our own. <laughs> George R. R. Martin. He, he doesn't write his own death. You know he already has. Probably. To piss off everyone, you know he's written his own death already. Yeah. And he's appeared in a... TV show as a zombie, so yeah, yeah, yeah I guess he get, he's covered his own death pretty well. Okay, first some background, some advice from higher power than us. So, reference for writers. Tumblr. Com writing tips number seventy six: How to write a death scene. It's not about the death; it's about the life. Avoid schmaltz. Go for details. So. Nice, quick, concise one there. Now, personally, I've written death a few times. In my first novel, uh, um, Polk Soliloquy, I had a dream sequence death in, in one part, and that actually inspired me to, in my second book, Life Penance, to actually have an act, the actual death of the main character early in the book and then just dealing with the aftermath. So, but in Punk Soliloquy, we had the imaginary death of the main of uh, the main character, and then later we have in a flashback scene 
dealing with the death of a parent. In my second book, Life's Penance, I have you follow a main character for the first couple chapters, and then he dies at the end of chapter three. And then the next couple chapters are just dealing with the aftermath of the funeral and everything. And basically what I did was I set up basically three protagonists at the beginning, but you only really focus on one until the death, and then the other two carry the rest of the book. But as I've done with the advice here, you know, you don't, you don't spend too much time writing the death scene because then it's just, it's overkill. I mean, it's even worse than Tarantino. <laughs> it's all about the fact that this life is ending and that's the important part. Yep. But then, of course, as it said, as this advice says, avoid schmaltz. You don't make it all time slowed down and he felt death, felt his life slipping away. Well, unless it's, you know, a sickness or really intense death. So, and then some more advice from Orbit Books. Ten things I've learned about writing about death by Trent Jameson. One, people have to die. Well, yeah. Nobody gets out of life alive. <laughs> Number two, death isn't a joke. It can be cruel, ridiculous, and tragic. But if you treat it as a joke, it becomes meaningless. Number three, death wants all the cool lines. The moment a character says, I am death, is a certain amount of inescapable gravitas. Oh, if you're Oppenheimer, of course, I have become death. One of the greatest ad-lib lines. Number four, not everyone dies every day. There may be a death a day, but not nobody has to deal with death every day unless it's their business. Number five, death isn't dying. Dying through illness or accident is the sort of stuff life manages. Death can be an ending to suffering. It's not the suffering itself. Number six, death hasn't had a pale horse since it bought its first car in 1928. Oh, that's a great line. <laughs> Number seven, people have been writing about death since writing began, of course. Shakespeare was really big on death. Homer. I mean, come on, how many deaths in the Iliad and the Odyssey? Oh, so many. He is the font of Western literature. And how many people died, including the great Achilles? Number eight, sides are kind of cool. (laughs) Number nine, death is a good dancer. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, no, not that that matters, because the dance macabre is really just a conga line, and that's easy as long as you can kick and die with the music. Oh, God, no. Oh, boy. All right, and number ten, when writing about death, you're really writing about life. Because that's, I mean, that's the truth. You don't write so much death coming. You don't get a great ending, narratively speaking, without something at stake. Usually, the bigger, the better. Now, there's actually, I've seen a post going around Tumblr about the most jarring deaths are the ones that people that have suffered or lived a long life and then, you know, dying with unfinished business. So, all the deaths via J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter. Yes, absolutely. 
absolutely. So, I mean, it's always interesting. You can tell a bad movie by how bad its death scenes are. Oh, absolutely. There's some that it's just there for shock value. It's not so much that this life is ending. It's just, oh, somebody's dead. Mm. But my best advance example was there's a movie that came out in the late 90s called Deep Blue Sea. Yep. About a scientists at a secret base that have developed super sharks that are super intelligent because, you know, that's a great idea. Well, it's always a great idea. Fantastic idea. And, of course, the sharks break out because they're not super intelligent and they start attacking everybody. And the forgive, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie and you're planning to see it, it actually is somewhat entertaining because, like I said, spoiler alert, the people you don't expect to survive survived. I mean, it's uh, the survivors are the really gung ho adventurous guy who was against them doing all the work on the sharks in the first place, and the cook, played by LL Cool J. <laughs> but you have this scene where Samuel Jackson is the head of the company that's running this thing, and the sharks on the loose. And they, they're really dejected. They're going to die. So they're now all gathered by the pool that is access to the underwater and how they could possibly escape. And Samuel decides he's going to Samuel the heck out of this and give this speech to get everybody going. We're going to kick this shark in the nose. And, you know, really, we're going to survive. We're going to get out of here. We're not going to let this shark eat us. And immediately, as soon as he says that, shark jumps out of the water and eats him. Of course, because that's exactly what had to happen. Yeah. It's just right when he, you're expecting him to really, you know, in any other base under siege or, you know, that kind of story. It's the person that's finally getting them all together so that they're going to survive. And he immediately gets eaten. I have to say, some of my favorite deaths via movies... I'm going to give uh, three via via movies, so spoiler alerts, and then one via, you know, uh, books. So my favorite, some of my favorite deaths via movies would be uh, two from The Princess Bride. Mm-hmm. So spoiler alerts for the spo- for that, you know, upcoming spoiler alerts for lots of things. So just head on from now. Um, the first one being uh, the Vincini, the mm-hmm strategist who wants to kidnap the princess and kill her. The death in the Battle of Wits. Yes, the Battle of Wits death. Just just him laughing quiet mm-hmm. and keeling over. It's all of what, th- two or three seconds of the movie, the death scene? Yeah. But that's an iconic death scene right well, there. Because he, he pretty much thinks he's tricked the man in black. Right. And he goes, never go in with a Sicilian when death is on the line. Absolutely. <laughs> And he's dead. And you ever you go into that scene knowing he's gonna die. Yeah. Nothing's gonna happen to the hero. Nothing's gonna happen to the princess. He has to die. It's the only way the scene can go. Yeah. And it goes, but it's still a great death scene. Mm-hmm. The other one from that scene is, of course, when Amigo Montoya Indigo. kills the six-fingered man. Yes. You know, he runs him through the heart. And that's a fantastic one. Especially since leading up to running through the heart, 
he inflicts on him every wound mm-hmm. back to him that the six-fingered man has inflicted on him. There was a uh, an interview I saw with I can't remember his actor name. I, you know, Andy Patinkin. Andy Patinkin, thank you. Where they asked him, you know, how he was able to convey the perfect emotion for that scene, and leading up to this, he lost his father to cancer. Mm-hmm. And in that scene, he was channeling him killing cancer to get his father back. So in that scene, as he, you know, runs a six-fingered man through the heart, he gets his father back. You know, in that scene is, you know, how he said, what he said in the interview, you know, Mm -hmm. much, you know, garbled by my poor memory. Right. But that one right there, I think, is one of the most, you know, a much more iconic death scene. And of of course, Princess Bride is a wonderful book. Oh, absolutely. That that they did a pretty good faithful uh, savings of, I mean, a rendition of for the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Another favorite movie, Death Scene of Mine. This one's going to catch me a lot of flack. I know. Send all your email to publishpodcast at as21.com and I'll forward them to Paul directly. Thank you. Uh, you can all yell at me for this one, but The Last Samurai. Really? really? Where, you know, the general dies at the very end of the movie after mm-hmm. leading the failed charge on the machine, on the miniguns. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's the last one to die and Tom and Cruz has to, you know, help him finish seppuku. I think that's a good scene. Okay. You know, it you got you got the true end, you know, as we're talking about showing how he lived and you start the movie off with a suicide of seppuku at the very end where the failed general who just has all of his troops slaughtered by the samurai mm-hmm. does it right there in the battlefield and you know Cruz gets captured shortly after that. He goes through his life. He lives life for that year as a samurai, gets accepted into the culture. And then he joins them against the now rebuilt Japanese modernized military. Mm -hmm. And they get slaughtered just as they had slaughtered in the front in the beginning of the movie. You know, and the general dies as he lived, you know. So, and ultimately his death brings about all the changes he had wanted to show in the first place. My final death scene that I like, uh, I like is a hard term for this one, but one of the death scenes that I really, really gotta say affects me in a really interesting way is in Frank Herbert's Doom. Okay. Now, a lot of you who have read the book, spoiler alerts, spoiler alerts, whatever, you know, remember that. A lot of you will probably say the death of Duke Leto Atreides. Absolutely. That is a fantastic death scene. Truly, truly amazing. Next one, however, the one that really gets to me it's one that, you know, a lot of people gotta, you gotta think about it, in my opinion. But a truly, a true death scene. Dying as you lived, showing the value of your life, 
the death of Paul Atreides' maternal grandfather. Just that again, spoiler alerts for those, you know, that siren should be going off of perpetually for this episode. Remember, his maternal grandfather was the Duke Harkonnen. Duke Vladimir Harkonnen. And he dies toward the end of the book, just as the Fremen are laying waste with their atomics to the shield wall, attacking the Sardaukar and the Harkonnen bases, and then ultimately claiming the planet for Duke, now Duke Paul Atreides. So, in my opinion, one of the best literary death scenes, again, is the death of Duke Vladimir Harkonnen at the end of Dune, where he is stabbed by St. Ali of the Knife, Paul's abomination of a two-year-old sister, who stabs him with the Atreides Gomjabar, you know, and poisons him to death. And, you know, and then it's one of the more horrific poisons, you know, as they say early on in the book, it's a poison only for animals. And who dies but the main character's greatest nemesis dies by the thing that's only supposed to kill animals. So, oh yeah, again, remember, I love Duke Leia to Atreides. He's, you know, in terms of father figures in books, he's a fantastic father figure, for the most part. Some minor issues that I will argue, sure. But Duke Vladimir Harkonnen definitely had a true death. You know, worthy of some grandeur, in my opinion, for literary purposes. That's a good one. So, uh, I was thinking about it. What do you think is probably the most well-known death scene? Julius Caesar? Yeah. And I'd say it's it's even above Romeo and Juliet. Yep. And even, you know, the complete and utter slaughter at the end of Hamlet. Well, I mean, the death of Julius Caesar, you know, Romeo and Juliet... It ends. All, yeah, all of them. All of those are great death scenes, but they're all not real. The death yeah. of Julius Caesar is a real-life death kept immortalized through the literary abilities of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. So, I I would say, I would absolutely say that's probably the most famous death there is. Because, A, it was based on fact. You know, anyone who disputes the fact that Julius Caesar was stabbed by, you know, 30 individuals, including his best friend, if you argue that, you're an idiot. I'm going to call you on it. You are an idiot. <laughs> you know, I don't use it. Actually, I use the term lightly, but in this case, I'm serious. You're an idiot. Uh, move on with yourself. Go study a history book. Read some books. Educate yourself. You're an idiot. Um, but, you know, held and carried on in place by Shakespeare with the plays. Yes. Caesar is the most famous death, I think. Okay. Well, so, here, here's a list from the Telegraph in the UK. And when when you're looking for a good analysis of death in books, go with somebody from the UK. <laughs> they, know, they know death and fiction well. The ten, this is a they did a rating of the ten most traumatic deaths in fiction. Number one, Anna in Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. Mm -hmm. Number two, Lavinia in William Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus. Number three. 
Leonard Bast in E.M. Forster's Howard's End. Number four, Charlotte Hayes in Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. Number five, Catherine Earnshaw in Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights. Number six, Septimus Warren Smith in Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway. Number seven, Eustacia Vi in Thomas Hardy's Return of the Native. Number eight, Bertha Mason in Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Number nine, Cecilia in Jeffrey Eugenides' The Virgin Suicides. Okay, and this is gonna. This is the most recent one on the list, and I'm get. I think they threw it on just because they know their audience. Number ten, Albus Dumbledore in J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's because they know their audience. They know their audience. Yeah, yeah. Because well, I mean, so- you should just put. Book seven, Harry Potter deaths. Oh, yeah. You know, because you got Dobby. As a hor- that's a hard death. You yeah. got spoiler alerts, by the way. If you haven't read Harry Potter by this point and you're listening to this podcast, what the hell is wrong with you? Hey, hey, watch the swears. Sorry. Sorry. So we got Dobby. You got Hedwig. Yeah. You got Mad-Eye Moody. Mm-hmm. You got Snape. Mm-hmm. You got... Tonks. You got Lupin. Mm-hmm. You got Fred. And you got Harry. <laughs> Technically. Look, Harry doesn't count. He came back to life. You got Colin Creevy. Oh, true. Alright. Yeah, and those are all the ones that are named. And then if you want, if you go back further, I mean, you can pick up the deaths in the other books. You can pick up, you know, Sirius, Cedric. You can pick up, um, Oh, I know I'm missing one right now. I'm a horrible person. Oh, Harry's parents. Oh, Harry. Yeah. I don't really count Harry's parents because they happened before the story. You know. Yeah, but they're the cat, almost the catalyst for the story. They, no, absolutely, they are the catalyst for the story. But it's I don't. I have a hard time accepting most deaths that I don't read about. It's like, oh, I heard about your horrifying death. I'm sorry. You know, it's like reading about death in the newspaper versus being told about it in person. Right. Well, but, all right, so we've talked about a lot of things, but the key thing is what makes these deaths important is because these are characters that mean something to you. These are characters that you cared about. These are characters that, that their deaths were not trivial. Absolutely. Of course, if you're writing a book on the history of war, on battles, there's going to be trivial death. Always. There's going to be people that die senselessly, without meaning, cold. That's but that's unfortunately that's life. Yep. Uh, Joss Whedon was once asked, "Why does he kill so many of his characters?" And he goes, "Well." That's life. If you if you're mad with characters being killed, uh, that happens every day. God, God uh, he's the ultimate writer. And how many death scenes does he write a day? I mean, I'm obviously paraphrasing Joss Whedon. I think he was much more pithy about it. Yeah. Uh, there's a. Um, I'm trying to figure out how often he dies on the planet. 
Um, and I'm, yeah. So, uh, according to the internet, so take this with a grain of salt, they say that every second there is 1.8 deaths. So, over the course, so let's say the average podcast that we run here is roughly 40 minutes. Yeah. Give or take. So, over the course of this podcast, 2.4 thousand people are going to die. And that's just the edited version of the podcast. When you, you know, we're recording it in the beginning, we're going much longer. So even more people are dying as we right. sit here talking. So, and that's rounded math right there. Um, yeah. So keep this in mind, everybody. I mean, I, I kind of stole the line from a Guns N' Roses uh, song, No One Gets Out of Life Alive. There you go. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And it's true. Yeah. And last, last we know of, there's nobody that's immortal. People that like to think they are, and then they end up being proven wrong. Yeah, absolutely, and despite what some stories tell us of certain people lasting for hundreds of years, and I think Moses lived to be seven hundred years old, and yeah, uh, yeah. Noah lived to be nine hundred years old. Or they all still died. Yeah, they still died. I think, realistically, the only person who I can think of via I. For those of you who are not Christian, who know Islamic tradition better than I do, you may have names for me. Email them to us. Feel free. The um, I know certain groups of Christian sects do not say that Mary died. She's the only one. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus died. We we know that one. But you know, some groups of Christians I've met do say that Mary merely was brought up to heaven at one point afterwards. You know. Mm-hmm. They never record her dying, so she is the only one I can think of. But this is getting into religion, so that's terrifying. Yeah. Anyway. Oh yeah, religion has its own difficulties with death. So yeah. Oh, um. By the way, I'm sorry, everyone. Uh, quick thing. I did my wrath wrong. Over the course of a 40 minute podcast, 4,320 people will die. Oh man, that's even that's even worse. Yes. Paul, so, why are you killing all these people? I talk a lot. <laughs> Anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, I know 2016 has been, it's felt like a particularly morbid year, but I think it's just the people that we've lost this year yeah. have made it feel worse. worse. People that we've lost that, well, in the case of some of them, we never thought, you know, this person's going to outlive everybody. I mean, David Bowie was particularly trying. Well, that was a hard one. And, but as we've been saying, Deaths that reflect the person's life yes. are important. Anyone who follows uh, military news, uh, you may have heard about the Russian commando mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago, who called an airstrike on himself so he could take out a group of ISIL terrorists. Islamic State, yeah. Islamic State, you know, whack jobs. Yeah. Whatever you want to call them. You know, and he took out a very large number, um, cause he was told, you know, backups there in 12 minutes, 10 minutes. And he's like, I got no more ammunition. I don't want them to capture me and parade me around and torture me. Right. Airstrike this position. They've got me surrounded. Take them out with me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll get, I'll do that. And he was a young guy too. He was in his early twenties and he, he was a, he was a soldier who loved his country and he did not want to see 
his country and his military tradition dishonored. And so he gave the ultimate sacrifice that he could and lived the way any soldier would. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, and it's important to remember every, yes, every death matters. Every person mattered. How they died, it just makes it different. I mean, I remember back when the Columbia disaster happened back in 2003. Yeah. There were some people that were of the mind of we're sitting here and we're feeling horrible about the seven astronauts that were killed in the breakup of the Columbia. But at the same, on the same day, 14 soldiers were killed in a helicopter crash in the Middle East. And the question of was who, what, we're paying all this attention to these seven, but here's 14. And why is it so important? But the thing is, we, to that point, it had been almost, it had been, what, 17 years since Challenger? Yep. So people were not expecting. I mean, we were led to believe that space flight was safe. Of course, it was never true. It was just what people believed. So having the Columbia break up on return is just yeah jarring to people because unfortunately, <laughs> pretty much to quote Heath Ledger's Joker in The Dark Knight, <laughs> a bunch a bunch of soldiers die. Nobody cares. You try to kill one mayor and people go crazy. Uh, and it's just what people expect. Oh, man. Okay, we could talk for hours about how dealing with death, but we're talking about writing death, and pretty much there's no better advice we could give than make it worth it. Yeah. Make the death pull at the person. Yeah. And you gotta, and remember the death scene, it's not just the physical, it's not just what's, how the person's dying, it's the emotional toll on those around them. Yep. Well, now, I've actually heard the advice that you never want to go to the funeral in a book. I went ahead and did the whole funeral for my main character in Life's Penance because I wanted you to be in the same position as the friends who had lost the character. So it's all, it's all in how, I, for the book, I mean, my book, obviously, the death was the jarring thing. The death was the, you know, the, the big plot twist that carried the rest of the story and how people dealt with it. Ending, of course, with the friends gathering at the gravestone in the cemetery. So. Yep. But that's because... When I was, that's where I was at my that point in life. I was dealing with the loss of someone close to me who actually left us after I finished the book. But what was incredible was the day my character died in the book was the same day, different year that the person died, left died in my life. And then even crazier, the I had a song play at the funeral when we were leaving the funeral. The sun first song we heard on the radio was the song I had playing at the funeral in the book. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's, messed, that's messed up. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh... Well, damn. But if you're writing, you should feel the emotion of the death because this is your character. This is part of you. You, you just killed off one of the voices in your head. 
So I've written I've written a number of death scenes in my time. Uh, not as many as I probably could have. Spoiler alert for Will of the Magi, but for others. Mm-hmm. Um, I could have written a lot more, but, you know, I don't need them as much yet. But soon, soon. Uh, but a, a good death scene, yeah. You know, and again, it could be a drawn out one. And it could be, you know, could be a chapter's death, could be a sentence, could be a couple words. But, again, the best advice we all going to have for you is pull at the heartstrings, make us feel your death. And if you can do that in a chapter, good for you. If you can do that in a sentence, good for you. You know, as long as you got that emotion there, you're going to have a well-done death scene. So... That's that's the be- that's the end of my advice. Yeah, I mean foreshadow whatever how much you're comfortable with foreshadowing. If you, heck, there are some good books that started out with the main character saying this is the story of how I died. Yep, there are some fantastic ones there. Yeah, we haven't even mentioned uh, incarnations of immortality or Discworld yet. Oh, no, that's... We're, not going there. <laughs> we're not going there yet. All right, so let's wrap this up. This has been the April 2016 edition of the Publish Me Podcast, Chapter 13, Writing Death. Next month, we'll be having a guest on again. We'll be welcoming self-published novelist Carolyn O'Neill. Carolyn is uh, actually a contributor to the Age 21 Annual for 2015. She is author of the new novel, Kingsley, which she crowdfunded through a Kickstarter campaign last year. So... She previously had a Kickstarter campaign for another book, and which wasn't successful, but then she tried again and was successful the second time around. So we're going to have Carolyn on, and we're going to be talking about crowdfunding your novel. So any questions you might have about doing a crowdfunding campaign, now she used Kickstarter. In the past, we've done Kickstarter, but we've also used PubSlush. Unfortunately, PubSlush doesn't exist anymore but there are some other literary-focused uh, crowdfunding uh, sites out there. We'll be talking about a couple of them, but most of our focus with Carolyn will be talking about uh, what, how you know, taking what she learned from her unsuccessful Kickstarter campaign and turning it into a successful campaign the second time around with Kingsley. So check back next month. Uh, I want to apologize. We were going to do the live recording for this episode at the Virginia Festival of the Book in Charlottesville, but I was not well and was unable to make it, so we had to cancel our appearance there. In fact, my illness actually did you know did a number on some of our other offerings. We had to we had we had to cancel a few episodes literally this week. We didn't have an Ask AS Twenty One for that for the month of March. Nor did we have the ePress 21 webinar because I, I was desperately, direly ill. So pretty much I was just starting to get ill in last month's episode. And you may hear my voice now, but that's the worst of what I have right now. It's just a, a bad voice. But hopefully we'll be everything up and running for the month of April, including a trip to the Kensington Day of the Book in Kensington, Maryland on Sunday, April 24th, where we will be hopefully set but I set up to record your thoughts on crowdfunding, crowdfunding campaigns you've supported, crowdfunding campaigns you've run, or anything 
or whether or not even if you knew a book was crowdfunded, whether or not that changes your opinion of the book or the author. So come see us out in Kensington and let us know what you think, okay? Or as always, you can tweet to us at Published Podcast. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Published Podcast. Email us, Published Podcast at AS21.com. Plus, also, we would love to hear from you in the way of reviews. Review us on iTunes. Review us on Stitcher Radio. Review us on our own website, media.as21.com, or on our host site, Podomatic. Either way, leave a few words. We're not going to ask for five. We're not going to say we demand five stars. We would like five stars. We think we've earned five stars, but you're the one reviewing, so we're going to leave it up to you. But just leave a few words because it helps us and helps make the show better. The more people we listen, the hopefully we'll be able to get on more guests like Carolyn O'Neill or other people who aren't necessarily associated with AS21 directly and get some more good commentary going on here that could help be helpful for those would-be writers out there that are listening. So share, review, let it be known that you're enjoying our podcast. Hopefully, maybe it helps get other would-be writers listening and then help create even more great literature that's out there to be read and enjoyed. Just like you will enjoy The Will of the Magi by Paul Dickinson. Absolutely. And once again, everyone, thank you again. Looking forward to talking to you next month. As always, where there are thoughts and ideas, there are stories. We'll see you next month. Thank you so much. Copyright 2015, AS21 Publishing, LLC. All rights reserved. AS21 Publishing. What do you want your book to be? Thank you.